Yes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Lou Reed the godfather of punk, darling of Andy Warhol's factory, founding member of the Velvet Underground, amphetamine-fueled intellectual, rock and roll poet, a man who couldn't sing and sang anyway about the outcasts of New York City's dirty boulevards. But this isn't about Lou Reed. This is about Rachel Humphreys, mystery woman, transgender icon, trained hairdresser, a beauty whose body confounded everyone around her, into whose keeping Lou committed himself until their imperfect understanding of each other splintered them apart. This story is about a girl. Where did she come from? Who was she? Where, in the end, did she go? To the entourage that orbited around Lou Reed and the other denizens of New York's nascent punk and glam scenes, all these questions were unanswered when it came to Lou's girlfriend, Rachel. They weren't even certain she was his girlfriend. Some of them thought she might be his boyfriend instead. It was 1974. And even in bohemian circles, the popular understanding of gender categories and those who transcended them was pretty rudimentary. Even in queer communities of the time, the spectrum of gender was viewed differently than today. People like Rachel, who'd been assigned male at birth but presented themselves in a feminine way, mostly called themselves transvestites or drag queens or just gay. 
a word which then encompassed all kinds of sexual and gender identities that deviated from the norm. We don't know how exactly Rachel would describe her identity, because no one who remembers her seems to have asked. Maybe it struck them as impolite. And anyway, Rachel wasn't given to explaining herself to strangers. Sometimes she introduced herself with the name her parents gave her, other times as Rachel. Her friends, including Lou, switched pronouns in mid-sentence when talking about her. Rachel seems to have let them all sort it out for themselves. As far as Lou was concerned, she simply appeared to him one night, like a vision, in a Greenwich Village club. Lou had been awake for more than 48 hours at that point. On amphetamines, his drug of choice, he famously sang O's to heroin, but in practice, speed was more his speed. Lou was at the stage of amphetamine insomnia where everything around him was glowing and hyper-real. Even so, this girl stood out. Like she was vibrating at a higher frequency than everything else. He was entranced. Rachel was gorgeous. Tall and slender and elegant with masses of dark hair down her back. She had a narrow, oval face with high cheekbones and arched brows that made her look like she was always a little amused, a little skeptical, reserving her judgment about everything she saw. Later on, Lou wouldn't remember what he said to make her come home with him, but he remembered talking to her for hours and hours that first night while she sat there and looked at him, silently. Maybe she was just shy, but to Lou it came off as a refusal to be impressed. He liked that she seemed to have no idea who he was and wasn't a fan of his music. Lou had been with men and women, but when he met Rachel he was living with a girlfriend, the latest in a series of cisgender blondes. His idea was that the three of them should shack up together. Instead, after a while, the blonde moved out. And Rachel, Rachel stayed. She was 22 then. People said she was from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. People said she'd gone in prison for sex work. In reality, she'd grown up in New Jersey and Texas and gone to hairdressing school. Her parents had recognized her feminine nature even when she was small. They used the male pronoun for her and always would but they accepted that she would be more of a daughter than a son. When she grew up with her mother's blessing, she did what so many other girls like her did in those days and moved to New York. She arrived just as the queer underworld was enjoying a rare moment of mainstream glamour. Marsha P. Johnson, heroine of the Stonewall Riot and the founding mother of the activist group slash communal squat star, street transvestite action revolutionaries, was sitting for portraits at Warhol's factory. The New York Dolls were performing in drag at Max's Kansas City, and Lou Reed was singing about gay and transsexual hustlers taking a walk on the wild side. Like Rachel, Lou had grown up outside New York on Long Island. As a teenager, a period of emotional distress had landed him at Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, where, over eight terrible weeks, he survived 24 sessions of electroshock therapy. 
That's what was recommended in Rockland County to discourage homosexual feelings, he would say bitterly in an interview decades later. In 1959, homosexuality was still considered a mental illness. The brutal treatment left him with short-term memory loss, an enduring, unfocused rage, and a disdain for the normative lives of suburbanites like his parents. The factory drew him like a beacon, a paradise for outcasts, junkies, artists, and deviants. Lou was most fascinated by the deviants. He made a habit of befriending transsexual sex workers, bringing them home to his apartment. He'd interview them on tape, delighting in the gritty details of their lives on the street. Sometimes their stories would reappear in his songs, both with his former band The Velvet Underground and on his solo album Transformer, the same way Warhol featured the faces of trans sex workers in his artwork. Rachel was more than an art project, though. Wherever Lou went, Rachel went with him. To clubs, to shows, to parties, to interviews. A painting of Rachel, reflected in Lou's sunglasses, graced the back of his 1974 album, Sally Can't Dance, and images of them together proliferated as they were photographed together in magazines like Rock Scene and Penthouse. Rock journalists noted the new relationship. One described Rachel in print as a tall, exotic person and noted the fragile elegance of her beringed hands. Others were less kind. Lester Bangs famously wrote about her in terms that started with grotesque and got more vile from there. That was the end of Bangs' friendship with Lou. Lou's jaded factory friends couldn't quite understand the relationship either. You were supposed to make provocative art about transvestites, not date them. Was Lou taking a joke too far? Was this a stunt? Was Rachel some kind of avant-garde punk fashion statement, like when he bleached his hair and shaved his eyebrows? Was this a gay thing? Prurient, even crass speculation swirled around the couple. It seemed like people would consider any scenario other than the obvious. Rachel and Lou were in love. Rachel was Lou's girlfriend. Rachel took her role as Lou's girlfriend seriously. She was his minder, fixer, protector, and gatekeeper. She could freeze out unwanted attention if she had to. Outsiders could come away from her with an impression of stone-faced intimidation, a human fortress. Some of them later recalled her quiet protectiveness of Lou as wifely, Others thought her silence was manly, unfeminine. People saw in her what they wanted to see. Her friends, however, saw something else. Her enthusiasm, humor, and wry irreverence, especially about herself. She'd show you her new pumps and then laugh at you for asking what name she was using that day. If you were meeting up with her for a midtown shopping expedition, She might stage a faux proposal, bawling, I love you, marry me, at you across four lanes of Manhattan traffic. And if you were out at a club and she was drunk enough, she might pull up her skirt to show off her dick. She was proud of how small it was. I make a better woman than I do a man, she declared cheerfully. Rachel and Lou lived together with two miniature dachshunds, the Count and the Duke. 
in Lou's tiny but chic Upper East Side apartment. Lou's gold records on the wall, a zebra skin rug on the floor, the physician's drug reference on the coffee table. Lou wrote poems about Rachel as a mermaid. He took her on vacation to the Caribbean. As an English major, he delighted in her way with language. He was working on a song called I Wanna Be Black, and she told him, if you're gonna be black, be black, but don't give me no shades of gray. He memorized her lines. But he also prized her toughness, her rough street kid edges. She taped razor blades to the hem of her dress when she went out, just in case. Once she drew a knife on a woman who looked at Lou the wrong way. Some people saw signs that there was a darker side to their life together. The writer, Richard Sasson, sometimes visited a friend who lived in Rachel and Lou's building. And he occasionally ran into Rachel spending the night in the lobby. She'd be curled up on the couch with a black eye or a bruised face. Had Lou hit her? He'd hit previous partners, including his first wife, Betty Kronstadt. So, probably. Are you okay? Sasson asked Rachel once. Rachel just told him to fuck off. What no one could deny was that Lou was happier with Rachel. More stable, which was saying something for a person who ingested amphetamines by the fistful. He was already working on an album of love songs in the winter of 1975, and that spring, when he left New York for a European tour, Rachel came with him. She put her cosmetology school degree to good use, doing his hair before shows. In Milan and Rome, they ran into young fascists who turned the concert into a riot, but they escaped unscathed. The next summer, though, when Lou was sent on a world tour, Rachel had to stay home. There was some problem with her passport. He missed her so much that he would call her every night, leaving the line open for hours so he could listen to her breathe as she slept. He got as far as New Zealand, the tour's second stop, before he called off the whole thing and flew home. At the time, Lou was at war with his label, RCA, and his manager, Dennis Katz. He hated them both, but was too contrary and stubborn to just break with them. Instead, he made himself odious. His latest defense had been the release of an infamous double album, Metal Machine Music, each side containing about 15 minutes of grinding electronic feedback noise, unlistenable and unsellable. It was a big fuck you to everyone, including the kids who had thrown bricks at his head in Italy. Now, though, he was back in the studio working on something completely different. It started with a song that could almost be one of the 1950s doo-wop numbers he'd grown up on, but telling a story no 50s song ever told. The story of meeting a queen in a club and being struck with a crazy feeling. I've made the same scene, he sang. I feel just like you. This was a girl, he explained as the album went on, who was no average girl. A girl who understood him when he was down, down, to down, down, down. His best friend, his Coney Island baby. Lou's music was often full of poses and paradoxes. He often told critics that he never wrote songs from his own viewpoint, that a real Lou Reed didn't exist and certainly couldn't be discerned from listening to his music. 
But it's hard to listen to Coney Island Baby and not hear sincerity, even vulnerability. Critics called it the most romantic record of his career, raw and revelatory, a love letter. And Lou made no secret about to whom it was dedicated. As the last song ends, you can hear him step close to the mic and murmur, I'd like to send this one out to Lou and Rachel. I swear I'd give the whole thing up for you. Coney Island Baby came out in the winter of 1975. Lou and Rachel had left the chic one bed on the Upper East Side and were staying in a room at the Gramercy Park Hotel, living on $15 a day. Lou was deeply in debt to RCA Records, facing bankruptcy. He had also finally contrived to make his manager quit by publicly referring to him with a racial slur for Jews, despite Lou being Jewish himself. Finally, Lou got a call from Clive Davis, founder of Arista Records. Do you know who that was, Lou cried to Rachel when he got off the phone. It was their new meal ticket. I've won, he told her. Lou signed with Arista. He recorded a new album, Rock and Roll Heart, and put together a greatest hits compilation, the second of his album covers to feature Rachel's face. When he went back on the road for an international concert tour in 1976, Rachel went with him. This time, she was doing a lot more than just hair. She was essentially running the logistics of the tour, making sure the venues were ready, arranging rides to and from the gigs, and looking after the dachshunds, whom they'd taken along with them. Rachel has looked after the money and kept me in shape and washed over the road crew, Lou told the reporter who met up with them toward the end of the tour. At last, there's someone hustling around for me that I can trust. Then Lou asked the reporter to feel Rachel's forehead. He thought she was running a fever. She had an infected lung. How is it I'm the voice of reason, asked Lou, speaking to Rachel. It's me who tells you to put your coat on and it's you who should be looking after me. We'll end up this tour hating each other. No, we won't, Rachel said. But the tour did end in pain. An entry in Andy Warhol's diary for Sunday, December 19th, 1976. Lou Reed called and that was the drama of the day, Warhol wrote. Lou told Warhol that the tour had been a success. They loved him in L.A., but afterwards Rachel had been mugged, kicked in the balls, and was bleeding from the mouth. Lou wanted to know if Warhol could give him the name of a reliable doctor. I told him he should take her to the hospital, Warhol wrote, but there was something else he noted down. I was calling Rachel she because she's always in drag, Warhol wrote, but Lou, he noticed, was using a different pronoun. Lou called Rachel he. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 1977, Lou and Rachel's third anniversary. 
They celebrated in London at a gay club called Monkberries. There was a three-layer mocha-flavored cake inscribed in icing with the words one layer for each year and looking forward to many more. Atop the cake, their initials L and R enclosed in a heart. They toasted each other with champagne before they cut the cake. He gave her two diamond rings. It was deliberately like a wedding. But within a year, they'd be living apart. The fight they kept having over and over was about Rachel's body. She wanted surgery, and several times she made an appointment with a doctor. Lou would support her initially, then change his mind. Why are you doing this, he'd ask. I love you because of the way you are. He viewed the surgery that Rachel craved with a visceral revulsion. Years before, during his Velvet Underground days, he'd written a song called Lady Godiva's Surgery, a body horror fantasy in which he imagines a doctor slicing away at the growth like so much cabbage. There's a long, dismal history of cisgender men who only desire their trans partners for their extra part, and Lou may have been among their number. But it's clear he valued Rachel as a person, not just a body. He neither hid her nor exhibited her. He interacted with her as a partner, not an object. Maybe the root of their schism is deeper. As an artist, Lou was always rapidly vacillating between two values, authenticity and artifice. His love of the real, unfiltered, dirty New York streets on the one hand, his formative steeping in the arch poses of glam rock on the other. He was slowly coming to favor the former and disdain the latter. No more junky faggot trip, he told a reporter in 1975, by which he meant no more shaving his eyebrows and pretending to shoot heroin on stage, no more performing queerness to satisfy the expectations of a straight audience. My gay people don't lisp, he explained in another interview a few years later. I'm one of them and I'm right there just like anybody else. But for women like Rachel, what other people might see as artifice is authenticity. The alteration of the body through such means as makeup, hormones, or surgery constitutes not an obfuscation, but a revelation of their authentic selves. This seeming paradox may have been beyond Lou's comprehension, and he might not even have understood Rachel as female exactly. She's more beautiful than any fucking woman, he'd snap at friends who criticized her. He sometimes described their relationship as homosexual. It wasn't an unusual view for the time, when gay men and trans women were still often seen, even by themselves, as part of a continuum. Maybe Lou had thought that he and Rachel were both basically men, both of them just playing around with gender expression. Maybe he had believed, as he sang on Coney Island Baby, that they had made the same scene, that they were essentially alike. But they weren't. The fights they had over the issue of surgery were devastating for Rachel. Usually so calm and cool under pressure, she would break down completely torn between making Lou happy and being who she needed to be. After one fight, she called a friend from a hotel room. She was suicidal, totally distraught, and out of cash. 
The friend met Lou downtown to get enough money to cover the hotel, and then she spent the night with Rachel, watching over her to make sure she was still there in the morning. The relationship didn't end with a bang, but a long fade-out. Lou and Rachel moved to an apartment on Christopher Street in the village, but by the summer of 1978, they were living separately. Sometime that year, Lou met a cisgender woman named Sylvia Morales, who would later become his second wife. Soon, Sylvia was living with Lou and the two dachshunds on Christopher Street, and Lou's friends didn't see Rachel around anymore. If anyone asked Lou what had happened to her, he'd just tell them they didn't want to know. The last time Lou and Rachel saw each other was probably in January of 1979 at the country house Lou had bought for him and Sylvia in Blairstown, New Jersey. Lou was auditioning a new guitarist that day, and Rachel made her appearance dressed to stun, tall and elegant in leather. At a rehearsal break, she handed Lou a bag with the possessions she was returning to him. She stood next to Sylvia without a flinch. She was cordial, collected, and then she was gone. She was gone from Lou's life, but not from his music. Not yet. Street Hassle was a piece he worked on during their relationship, but recorded and released after their breakup. It's a 10-minute journey through several character viewpoints, a woman picking up a street hustler, a drug dealer disposing of a corpse, and even features a verse spoken by Bruce Springsteen, who had been recording in the same studio. But the final words sound like Lou. They're the same raw, quiet voice he uses in Coney Island Baby, singing about a love who had taken the rings off his fingers and gone away. But oh, how I miss him, baby. That person really exists, Lou told a Rolling Stone reporter when the album came out. He did take the rings right off my fingers, and I do miss him. A few years later, after Lester Bangs died of an overdose, Lou went on a rant to a mutual friend about how much he'd hated Bangs for mistreating Rachel in print. Do you understand? This is a person I was close to, and he's calling her a creature and thing. But after that, Lou stopped talking about her at all. He stopped calling himself gay and started telling people he'd never been anything but straight. In a compilation of his work released in 1992, the liner notes refer to Coney Island Baby as the greatest love song of his career, but there is no mention of the woman he wrote it for. He'd erased her. It was easy, since Rachel had seemed to drop off the face of the earth. Reports of her in the 1980s were few and far between. Someone said she was living with an Apache named Chuck above an Indian restaurant on 1st Avenue between 5th and 6th, around 1983 or 84. Someone else said she had dated a guy named Howard in the East Village, where she still had pictures of her and Lou on the walls of her apartment. Someone said she was shooting heroin. Everyone was shooting heroin in the 80s. Someone said she hiked up Bear Mountain in the mid-80s, one beautiful day when the sun sparkled off the Hudson below. A guitarist friend of Lou's ran into her in the village late in the decade, real thin, possibly homeless, and clearly ill. 
She died in 1990 in St. Clair's Hospital in Hell's Kitchen. She's buried on Hart Island, where the city laid to rest its unclaimed AIDS victims. She was 37. In 2003, when Lou was 61, he became acquainted with a young musician who would later be known as Anoni, lead singer of Antony and the Johnsons. At the time, Anoni was using male pronouns and singing in a liquid, ethereal alto. By this time in Lou's life, he'd kicked the amphetamines, taken up tai chi, and become, by many accounts, much less of an asshole. He'd married again to the musician Laurie Anderson, who, like Rachel, had impressed him by never having heard his music. Anoni's voice enchanted Lou. He became her mentor. They toured together, sang together. He became as close as a father to her, even as she grew more feminine and started to use female pronouns. Did they ever talk about the other trans woman in his life? Did he think about Rachel as he watched Anoni sing? Lou died in 2013 of liver disease at the improbable age of 71. Along with his widow, Anoni helped arrange tribute concerts in his memory. She gave a statement describing the effect he'd had in her life. No other man had made her feel so perceived and loved for who she really was, she said. And in 2019, she posted a picture to her Instagram. It's a blurry close-up, a crop of a larger photograph, showing the oval face of a young woman. Her head is tilted to look at the person just next to her. Her arched eyebrows made her look just a little skeptical. Her lips are parted as if she's about to speak. You were the prettiest one, Anoni wrote next to the picture. Rachel. Rachel. Lou Reed's legacy will live on in the countless musicians and writers, like Anoni, who were inspired by his songs and his words. A mercurial and troubled artist who managed to outlive his worst years, Lou left a legacy in rock and roll that continues to reverberate among the outcasts and poets of the world. But this isn't about him. This is about Rachel Humphreys, one of the great loves of his life, a misunderstood muse whose story remained obscure for far too long, a woman whose light flared so brightly before it flickered and was gone. This story is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created by Eleanor Wells. This episode was written by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janowitz is the show's producer and composer. Matt Bowden provides logistical support. Special thanks to Aiden Levy, Jessica Krebs, and Heron Walker. I'm Nikki Lynette. Thanks for listening. You can follow me at at Nikki Lynette on Twitter and Instagram, at Double Elvis on Instagram, and at Double Elvis FM on Twitter. If you like the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more great podcasts from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com.